JMV here with Brian Kahn from Floors to Your Home. Fans, if you're shopping for flooring of any kind, you need to check these guys out. You're going to have the most incredible, totally hassle-free shopping experience ever. JMV, we really appreciate you saying that. That's our goal every day, to offer our customers a quick, easy, and hassle-free experience at all of our Floors to Your Home locations. Fans, it works like this. You see the product you like. It's going to be cheaper than anywhere else. That's for sure. Then you can immediately take it home with you or have it installed. That's right. No hassle, no special order. Just see it, buy it, and take it home, or have it installed. Like three rooms of hardwood, laminate, or waterproof flooring starting at just 349 and they have everything in stock. I'm doing my whole house, and believe me, this is the best shopping experience you'll ever have. Three convenient locations, Avon, Noblesville, and Brookville Road. Who gives the quickest, easiest, and most hassle-free buying experience? Floors to your home. That's who. On the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline from ESPN, ESPN.com, the coverer of the Colts is Stephen Holder. Um, much like I had a conversation with Chris Ballard at the Combine back in February when I asked him a similar question about Shaquille Leonard, and his response was, I wouldn't bet against him. It was not like that that was a ringing endorsement about the present state, current state, and then the short-term future state of Shaquille Leonard yesterday. Would you agree? Yeah, I guess everything regarding Shaq at this point is – it kind of boils down to show me, don't tell me. And the Colts seem to understand that because they're not making any public promises, if you notice, and you have noticed. They are staying away from proclamations and declarations and any other kind of uh, Rations. term you want to yeah. use. You know, <laughs> yeah. I think that's very intentional. And it's, it's a product of two things, in my opinion. It's a product of what has happened in the past, you know, the fact that they have, they have jumped the gun in terms of talking about his status, and, and it hasn't played out properly. And then secondly, it's, it's also a product of this being an injury that is very hard to predict. And that, if nothing else, we have learned that much. I don't think they can truly predict how this thing is going to go. And they're not willing to anymore. So I don't know what you want to do with that, but that's kind of where we are. Is it fair to make an argument that it is a time where you should know? And if you don't know, then that does mean the worst. Is there an argument to be had there? Well, I I would just say it's concerning that they don't know. That I think we can say. You know, what, what we, we there's too much we don't know, right, about the particulars of what's going on with him because they haven't gotten too into detail and we haven't talked to Shaq lately. So so we, there's a lot of details we don't know. And, and I'll give, not benefit of the doubt, but I will acknowledge that we don't know those things, right? But, but that's part of the problem. <laughs> we don't know enough. And they clearly cannot say that he's going to be available to start training camp. I mean – we're, we're a couple of weeks away, to, much to my chagrin, but that's another story. Uh, we're we're a couple of weeks away, and there's no real there's no real status offered right now on on where he's at. And and look, the biggest optimist in the building is the guy whose clip you just pay, just just played, Jamersey, and he even he is saying all he can offer is he's working hard. So I, I think the fact that there has not been anything uh, definitive whatsoever, like even 
remotely definitive yeah. is, is really concerning. So, Stephen Holder with us. We mentioned this the last time we talked, too. I, I just – knowing just how active – and clearly he's dialed that down a great deal – how active Shaquille Leonard has been in the past – uh, if if he felt he was, I think he would be telling us if he felt it right now, right? If he was in a good spot or, or what he thought was going to be a good spot. I, maybe not. I mean, maybe he's just changed this dramatically, his, his social media platform presence. But I just, I don't know if it changes that much to where if he was in a good spot, maybe he would be shouting at everybody who was thinking otherwise at this point. It's a fair question. And I do think that, that he has learn some hard lessons about not saying too much and not over-promising. I, I do think that's a, that is a, a reality here. So, you know, that may be part of what you are, what you are witnessing. But I, I also agree on the other hand that, that he is very outspoken and he, he does want to shout from the mountaintops when, <laughs> when he's, when he feels like he's right about something, he has a, he has something to say, you know? So, so maybe learn some, some discipline that way. And, and maybe that's what we're seeing now. I, I go back to what I said earlier. I think this is a situation that calls for a show me, don't tell me disposition. So I, I think that's the only way to handle this. What they say at this point doesn't matter. All that matters. It, it, frankly, it's not going to convince anyone. You know, what I want to believe it is not material. Uh, the fact is there's, there's a recent history where he has not been on the field and there have been some, some, some underestimating of the of the situation, or or just misdiagnosing, whatever it is. I, I don't know the right term, but that has happened, right? And so everything is going to be viewed through that prism, and we are where we are. So it's like I said, it's show me, don't tell me. Uh, they just don't have anything to show right now, from all we can tell. Yeah, what about fifteen days until we? Um... I guess everybody starts camp. We watch camp. You guys go up there as well. Yeah. I mean, what uh, you think they'll handle this situation, I guess, relatively the same way coming up in the well, next 15 look, days? Yeah, we're, we'll, talk to, we'll talk to Chris Ballard on day one, which I believe is when they report. Uh, two, day, two weeks from today, I think, if my dates are correct. Uh, so I believe that's right. Um, so we'll hear from Chris Ballard then. And we'll hear from the various key players. The question will be, will Shaq Leonard be among those players? Now, he did talk to us back in OTAs at one point. And, and I did want to get a second opportunity for him to, to come to the podium you know, during the, the final week, during that mini camp. I, I think the decision was made, and I, don't, I wasn't surprised by this, but I think the decision was made that – that nothing had changed in his status. You know, he was still not practicing, not available. Uh, they made kind of a, an organizational decision that they would not put him out there in front of the media again. Uh, I, and I get that, you know, there may be being nothing to be gained by doing that. I understand that. Uh, but that's the last conversation we've had in terms of his availability. So hopefully we, we get to have another shot at him here in a couple of weeks. All right, so I mentioned this before. Stephen Holder of ESPN, ESPN.com is on the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. But I thought what the Pacers did last year was really smart. Um, they they undersold and then even with not making the postseason, over-delivered. 
Is that a path in which you believe the Colts need to take? Because that was yesterday with what you heard from Jim Irsay with Pat. Wasn't your average Jim Irsay, hey, I can't wait. I'm really excited about the start of the season. Honestly, it seems like he's more excited about the Jim Irsay collection right now than he (laughs) is the start of this particular season. Is that them underselling and hopefully over-delivering, or is that them realizing that this may be a rough one this year and not setting really any bars at any level at the beginning of this season? You know, I I think that the – the range of outcomes for this season are all over the place. So I think what you're getting is a recognition of that. You know, what, what you're seeing or what you're hearing, I should say, is, is people acknowledging that, you know, we don't know what we are. <laughs> and I think that's true for us, too. It's not just for them. We, we think the same thing. I don't know what they are. I don't know what they're going to be. Uh, but I... I think they understand that. And, and frankly, with the young quarterback, you know, there's just, there's too many ways that can go. It's just, it's just so hard to predict what a guy is going to look like. Uh, I don't know how else you can play it other than to say, we'll see, because that's all you can say. That's all you know is that we'll see. There's nothing else to offer anybody because it's just, uh, (laughs) there's so many unknowns. There really are. I mean, it's not just the quarterback. It's also, you know, will the offensive line respond? You know, will the defense, you know, rise to the occasion? I thought they, they did last year, but they couldn't finish. Uh, will, will Jonathan Taylor be the player that he was two years ago? Because I think they're going to have to lean on him a hell of a lot, honestly. So, you know, there's all these questions, and, and they also learned from last year, okay? They have learned. To, to their credit, because they're and, and they weren't alone. We all thought, or a lot of us thought, that that last year had a lot of promise. Whether it was a playoff season or Super Bowl or whatever it was, we thought last year had some real promise. And we all know how that went. <laughs> okay, by the end of the year, Jeff Saturday was the head coach, so that didn't go exactly how they figured. So I, I think they've learned from that as well. And so you're hearing a very measured response from the Colts. And this, what you're hearing from Jim Mercy, even though he has never abided by this, uh, the people around Jim Mercy have been asking him to, to approach it this way, to kind of undersell and over-deliver, take that approach. He just, he has never been able to, to stick to it. So maybe he's learning too. Stephen Holder's with us. You're at ESPN, and you mentioned Jeff Saturday. Uh, he is, at least to my knowledge, no longer at ESPN. Is there going to be a point in time you think we're going to hear um, some major significant happenings, goings on from the Saturday angle of things going on regarding last year at some point, mm-hmm. or do you think he'll remain radio silent? That's a good question. I, I think that he has uh, – it probably depends on, on what's next for him. You know, you mentioned ESPN. Look, I have zero knowledge on whether he has had a discussion about coming back. I, I can't speak to that, but – I do know that he was certainly, I thought, a very effective broadcaster on the air. I thought he was really good at that and and was well-liked at ESPN. So whether it's at ESPN or somewhere else, you know, could he have some kind of broadcasting future? Yeah, that's, that's certainly possible. And I, I think if that's still out there as a possibility, maybe he wants to kind of not rock the boat. <laughs> but 
but if that's not the case, then there may come a time, you know, this is just my opinion, but there may come a time when he says, screw it. And I'm going to say what I got to say. And look, I mean, I will tell you that he did have his heart set on that job. And it wasn't just lip service. He really wanted that job. And I know that, that not getting it was a great disappointment to Jeff, to Jeff Saturday. So, you know, I don't think he was just kind of going through the motions. He really wasn't. He really wanted the job. And, and it definitely took a toll when he didn't get it. Whether you think he deserved it or not, I just think from a human standpoint, I get that, right? So he may have something to say at some point, but I, I just think he's got to figure out where he's going in the long term. I know that in the short term, I know he's been working in, he's got various business interests that he's been working with that I think that predate his his time as, as the head coach. Uh, so he's got stuff to keep him busy and, you know, making money and doing whatever it is that he does. So so we'll see what's, what's next for him. And then I think that will dictate whether Jeff Saturday – uh, has more to say. I, I, I think also what is dictating that is is how much he still wants to be, and rightly so, as a player revered here. You know, a Ring of yeah. Honor player. Uh, come, I, I, I think that you're going to be hard-pressed to ever hear too much negative. And honestly, if I'm Jeff Saturday, especially with all the jackassery that went on around here with some of these fans and petitions and stupid crap yeah. like that, um, he's a better man than I because I'd be pissed. I'd be mad yeah, at some of those around he, here right now, and I'm, I'm sure that he's also, understandably yeah. so, um, he, he knows that he still wants to be revered as much as possible around here with these Colts teams as successful as they were in the past and doesn't want to do damage to that. And I don't know if he feels he did damage to it by becoming the coach and then what transpired right. after that, but I'm sure he's sensitive to wanting to, to be at least in that opinion as a player here at a very high level that's just my guess no i think there's something to that and i will tell you look i i have spoken to jeff uh not recently but i would say um the last time i spoke to him was earlier this year and look he has a lot of feelings let me tell you he has lots of he he feels a certain way about a lot of things that you know i'll keep the conversation between us because that's what he asked me to do but i uh, yeah, he has he has a lot of feelings that he could could ultimately share if he would like. But I also agree with you. I, I do think that it probably doesn't. I don't think that it, it does him any good necessarily to to go nuclear. You know, I, I do think there is there's something to be said for being revered, as you said, as as a Colts as a great Colt in the Ring of Honor. You know, and and a guy who was was a great Colt. Great all-time player for this franchise. And you don't want to lose that. I mean, that can hurt you from a just a popularity standpoint. It can hurt you from a marketing standpoint. I mean, look, there's still just, just Saturday billboards around town, right? I mean, so, you know, there's he's a smart guy. You know, he don't want to just burn it all down either. You know, I, I think he gets that part. Doesn't mean that it makes it easy. I mean, look, I will tell you from my conversations with him that, what I what I will say is that, uh, yeah, I think he he didn't love the way he was portrayed. I can tell you that, and whether it was fair or not is not the question. Uh, he took he took exception to a lot of it, and and that's okay. That's okay, uh, including some things that I probably wrote. Okay, and that's fine. We cleared the air on that, but I, I think that he he definitely had feelings about a lot that transpired, and 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 a lot of the way that it reflected on him. 
So we'll see if he ever goes public with it. So before he was asked to become the head coach here and then took that gig on an interim basis, um, he was a consultant. Um, yeah. Would, would Jim Mersey would ever ask him to do that again? I'm assuming he is not right now, or or because you're the coach, you can't go back to doing consulting work. And then when you think about that, you see this happen all the time. I mean, across all sports and especially football, you get a former high-level head coach that, you know, because they still want to be a part of something and they're asked, are consulting within a team or doing something within a team. Do you ever see anything like that with this one? Or has Jim Irsay just completely moved on and left that behind? Yeah, I don't think in the short term that's that's on the table. I don't sense that. Uh, I think that two things. Number one, I don't know that, Jeff Saturday maybe wants that. I mean, I he agree. may want to. He may want to disassociate for a while, not out of not out of like animosity, but just because you know a lot happens, right? I mean, a lot happened last year, okay. And I think I think all parties need to just kind of like cool their heels and and not maybe have that kind of association right now. I, I just don't. I just don't know how it would go over. And, and the other thing too is that. You know, you have you have a new coach who's got you know trying to set his own culture, all those things. I, I think if you're Shane Steichen, if and if I'm Jim Irsay, and I don't know if he agrees with me, but if you're Jim Irsay, let your coach do his thing, let him have his space. He don't need somebody you know hanging over his shoulder or any of that. I, I don't. I think sometimes that's counterproductive. If you want someone to be a a consultant, it should be along the lines of what you saw with, for example, John Fox, who was here for a little bit. Uh, that was a request made by Frank Reich. He reached out to him. They had a relationship. Uh, he said, hey, you know, um, are you tired of retirement? If you are, I could use you. And he was willing. He was willing to somehow give up Marco Island, if you've ever been there. I don't know what he was thinking. Yeah, that's a tough one right there, yeah. <laughs> that's, but, I'm yeah, assuming, Marco though, Frank Reich, Frank Reich didn't ask Jeff Saturday to be a consultant, though, right? I mean, that was so, Jim. I've never gotten like the 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 play by play on this. I've gotten conflicting um, accounts of how it all came together, but my my sense is that Jim Mercy did have something to do with it. And and if you know if Jim Mercy was in favor of it, if you're Frank Reich, you may maybe you just go along with it. I don't know if that's how it happened, you know. But that's how I have that's how I envisioned that it happened. You know, Jim Mercy played some role. In it. I mean, listen, so, so the, the theoretical version in my head is <laughs> Jim Mercy says, hey, you know, just got a lot of good ideas. You should talk to him. And so, you know, and then it kind of goes from there. I don't know. That, that's how I kind of envision it happening. I'm putting all the pieces together. That's how I envision that it happened. But I, I honestly cannot say with 100% certainty how it went down. Yeah, one of these days, maybe we get some yeah. more insight on that. Stephen Holder is with us. So the other thing I wanted to get to out of yesterday's conversation with uh, Pat McAfee, the Colts owner Jim Irsay had, was he, like a lot of us, including myself, would wants to see Anthony Richardson be ready in week number one. I, To me, and this is just me talking here, I, I think that this further 
highlights the importance for Richardson to be ready because uh, now that's out there from the owner. And if he's not, then I would have to think that he would be not just a little bit away or a little bit not ready, but stratospherically not ready for him not to start in week one after what Jim Irsay alluded to yesterday in him needing to be ready in week number one. Would you agree? Well, I do think that, that Shane Steichen is his own man, and and he's got the – even though he's a young head coach and a first-year head coach, I get all those things. Uh, he is, though, uh, a guy who they have put a lot of trust in. and I think you have to let him do his thing, and I believe that the Colts will let him do his thing. Uh, there are times when, when these decisions are collaborative. I think there will be some collaboration here, too. It's, I don't necessarily think – that Shane Steichen is going to go in his office and flip a coin and go tell Chris Ballard his decision. I, I think they're going to collaborate on this and they'll keep Jamercy in the loop because that's how it works. That's how it should work. But I ultimately think it'll be Shane Steichen's um, decision. And, and I think that's the way to handle it. I mean, you hired him because he is a, a quarterback expert, if you will. And, and particularly a, a, a guy who has had success with this kind of quarterback. So I think he's, He's more than qualified, I think, to make a good decision on whether, on whether Anthony Richardson's ready to play. So I just hope that's the way they handle it. I think that's the way they will handle it. I would say this. I believe that – I think there, if there's not a lot of distance between what you're getting from Gardner Minshew and Anthony Richardson, then damn it, play Richardson. You know, I mean, and we'll know. We'll know because we're going to see every day of training camp. We're going to see the preseason. We're going to see the joint practices. We are going to have a very big body of evidence on whether this kid is ready, I think. I, I believe that. So I, I think it should be obvious. You should know it when you see it. You, you know a, an NFL quarterback when you see one. But the reason I say if it's close to play Richardson, I think it's the, it's the, ver- the variables that he offers that, ri- that Minshew does not. I think that's the tiebreaker. And what I mean by that is just his – his run ability, the the types of plays you can call with him versus what you can call with Minshew. You do have more limitations with Minshew. You certainly have limitations with Richardson because you're not going to throw the kitchen sink at him as a rookie quarterback who played one year of college football. So I there are limitations on both sides. I just think they have more cards to play. If you put that kid, if you think he's ready, you have more cards to play. If you put him out there. And now you can do some things that really stress the defense. I don't know what I don't know how many games they're going to win. I don't know if this kid is the guy or not. I mean, I think he's got a great future, but but we don't know that for a fact. But I still think the the abilities that Anthony Richardson presents and and how that meshes with Shane Steichen's strategic abilities and and insight, I think that's a great combination. And I think that gives him the nod if he's if he proves he's ready. That gives him the nod. If it's close over Gardner Minshew, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, and I, I just think that it, we're at a point now, especially with the words from yesterday, that if he is deemed not ready, that would mean he's in the the eyes of Shane Steichen to begin with, miles not ready, and not just well, just a little bit here or there, not ready. Yeah, and I, and I, mean, I just and I, I don't know how you're going to get ready um, during a season 
I mean, if you're not ready to start, I agree. It, so, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is the context matters too, right? Look, I, I I I respect Gardner Minshew and the way he has played. He has made a lot out of a career for a seventh round pick. Give him credit for that, and I, I want to be clear about that. At the same time, this is not Alex Smith and Patrick Mahomes back in 2017. I mean, Alex Smith was a bona fide quarterback who was like legit the quarterback, okay, and went on to be a starter. After Mahomes took over, he went on to be a starter in Washington because he was legit and he was clearly a, a bona fide starting quarterback. Uh, Gardner Minshew has not been a, a consistent starting quarterback over his four years. He's been a, a starter sometimes and other times not. Uh, he has never taken hold as a franchise quarterback. So not every quarterback battle is created equal. And, and so I think the context matters a lot. Anthony Richardson's still the fourth pick in the draft. He has unique abilities that that Gardner Minshew does not. Gardner has certain advantages. As I said, he knows the scheme. He understands Steichen and his offense and his principles uh, being with him in Philadelphia last year. But, again, who do you think is the biggest difference maker? I don't think that's even close, frankly. So as long as there's a comfort level with Anthony Richardson, as long as he's comfortable out there, and you think it's it's doable, I don't see the point. I think you go with him. All right. Jonathan Taylor, extension done before the end of this month. Mm. It's going to be a couple. Is it going to be three? Going to be three with an option. Going to be four. And somebody asked me this regarding the win-loss total over and under set at six. I would take the under. Where would you go? Well, just to be clear, did, did Ursa – comment on that because i didn't see the whole thing did he comment did he I, oh he didn't know he basically just commented on his health his health i'm just throwing, so, i'm just throwing crap out there right here good you're good i just want to make sure that i have all the information um and so i'll tell you this here's uh, i think i may have said this to you before i can't remember if it was you or the morning guys but uh i don't know that that extension is close i don't think it is in fact and and I, I I'm saying that based on information, not just you know talking out of my rear end. Now things can change very quickly, right? If if there's a sticking point and you get past the sticking point, well then that information could now change, right? But I don't I don't know that that has or has not. But I, I'm just telling you, as of more recent information that I got, I didn't get the sense that it was close, like even remotely close. And so. I don't know. I've always thought this was going to be a tough negotiation. I don't think it's going to happen before training camp. I would be surprised. And I think at that point, you know, they have to kind of figure out, like I think Jonathan Taylor has to figure out, okay, is he going to make a stink about this? You know, he started two already. And, you know, is he going to make a further stink about it? Is he going to be out vocal about it and, and outspoken? Because honestly, I thought it was very interesting. If you go back to the beginning of the offseason, Jonathan Taylor talked at the beginning, the very beginning of, of the offseason program, and he gave us this Boy Scout version of of his contract negotiation. <laughs> okay, He said, oh, you know, I'm fine. If, if, if I play you know, right. the final year on, on my old deal, that's fine. I signed the contract. No, no worries. And by the end of OTAs, he was like, damn it, I want a contract. So, I'm telling you, I don't think this thing's going well. Well, and with that in mind, and I'll go ahead and let you go here too, but I I just – I think that the Colts situation with the 
absolute high level of inexperience with Anthony Richardson and knowing fully, yeah. as we heard yesterday, that the owner wants him in there as quickly as possible. I, I think that the Jonathan Taylor's, to me, to the Colts, is an exception to the rule that we normally get mm-hmm. with running backs. I think he is mm-hmm. absolutely necessary for you know, just the day-to-day and then the game week and week out survival of the rookie quarterback. And I think it's just different here than it is even in New York with Barkley, yeah. as it was in Minnesota with Cook, as it was and still, I guess, is with the Chargers with Eckler. It's just different here because of that dynamic. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Andy Moore, Automotive Group, Potline, friend of the show, Cubs catcher, Tucker Barnhart's with us. Are you staked out here in Zionsville? Yes, sir. Um, enjoying the break. Just uh, got off the golf course with Tatum, so... Took him out for nine holes and uh, got to ride around. It was it was a good time. So, uh, how many bottles have you had of the uh, Field of Dreams so far? I've had three. I ha- I'm, I ha- I'm on my third one. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. <laughs> it's, it's good because it tastes really good, and it's my best friend, really, that, that makes yeah. the, the, the bourbon. But uh, I don't know about the, uh, the the amount of consumption. It's probably not a good thing. I called him. We were at uh, over. Uh, Fourth of July weekend. It was, I think, it was either Fourth of July or maybe July the third. I was at a pool party uh, with the Watson family and a bunch of friends, enjoying uh, some of the Field of Dreams. And everybody was drunk, so I called them, (laughs) called them, and held the phone up, and I said, "This is what everybody thinks about Field of Dreams." And so you just heard a bunch of drunk people in the background going, "Ah!" (laughs) He enjoyed that a great deal. Sure, he loved it. Have you had the canned cocktail? I had the the canned cocktail is awesome. It is phenomenal. Those things sneak up on you. You could drink yeah. a quick four pack of those real quick and not be able to see straight. I'm telling you, they do <laughs> see, and that's that's what we kind of go for a little bit. And again, uh, it, we we use we use caution and great judgment here because we do of this course. at home or we're someplace else. But yeah, there's nothing quite like really at any age when you're in a safe spot. Yeah, where you can have something like that sneak up on you. It makes it extra special. Extra special, indeed. <laughs> I've passed out in many yards down in Greene County before because things have sneaked up on me, and that would be one of them. <laughs> right there. Face down in somebody's yard would be me right there. So, anyway, yeah, Field of Dreams. I, I think I, I, he gave me a bottle in studio, and I think he meant me to keep it as a keepsake, and unfortunately I didn't. <laughs> I drank, I drank it as a keepsake. Fill it back up with something, and you never know. <laughs> no, exactly. I have to put the the cork back in and everything. But no, it there is it is pretty good right there. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Enjoying the summer. Uh, baseball in Chicago is fun. Uh, we got a we got a good group of guys, and uh, I think we got a, a team that that's got a chance in the second half. We finished the first half, I think, on a high note. Um, but a team in the second half that if we um, come out of the break hot, uh, which I think we will, and put ourselves in a position maybe to make a run at this uh, NL Central. Uh, get, getting the uh, the Yankees in the fashion in which you and your team did, and certainly you had a, a double to help cap that off, give you momentum going into the All-Star break. Is that a real thing, momentum into the All-Star break? 
I think so. I think there, I mean, there's most certainly bad momentum. There's no doubt about that. Um, and there's also, I think, the momentum where you wish maybe that the All Star break was maybe a week later or a week sooner. Um, I, I think that that we we were playing really good la- uh, this past weekend, and I would say that that some of us probably were hoping that that we didn't have a break, but uh, but obviously the schedule is what it is, and um, we got uh, the Red Sox right out of the break, I think, and then the Nationals or the Nationals and the Red Sox, something like that. Um, so we're going to be a, a good test at Wrigley uh, right out of the right out of the gate, and all these games I think are, are super super meaningful. Not only for the for the record and everything like that, but to see what we're going to do, um, kind of as the uh, trade deadline comes, because I think we're in a in an interesting spot where I think um, the rest of the games leading up to that really truly matter in terms of what direction your organization is going to go. So Tucker Barnhart with us at the Cubs. What happened in that game in Milwaukee over a week ago? What what was going on with the roof? What what was Milwaukee trying to do? <laughs> I don't know. I had, I had never seen that. I've I've played almost a, a, a half a season's worth of games at that place, and I'd never seen outside of when it's going to rain um, the the roof move. Uh, it's known league wide that when you go to Milwaukee and you play at certain times of the day, that it's some of the worst shadows, if not the worst shadows, uh, in the league. And then all of a sudden, we look out and it's. Six to two good guys, meaning us, and uh, the roof was closing and the shadows were going away and making it easier to hit. So I, I have to think that <laughs> I have to think that if it were six to two the other way, that uh, the roof would have been wide open and the shadows would have been hell. Uh, but that's just a conspiracy theorist in me. Um, apparently, the team itself has nothing to do with the the, the roof moving. It's ballpark operations, and so I, I, I can't imagine that if somebody over there called up to the press box and said hey can we think about shutting this roof uh, that they wouldn't go ahead and do it so i don't know i don't know I, um well yeah, clearly your manager david ross was not at all happy about those <laughs> circumstances as we we witnessed so there's no rule that that you have to stay consistent during a game with these uh these roofs that you have like in milwaukee around major league baseball apparently not huh. uh, but again i mean that's the, that's the first time i'd ever seen that i now um, they've they've closed it. I, I've seen it go from all the way open to all the way closed. I've never seen it go open <laughs> halfway. To halfway to halfway <laughs> to like three quarters to like ninety five percent. I've never seen anything like that. Um, but it was uh, it, not. I mean that that on top of the the way that the baseball games ended certainly were uh, was made for a wild series. That is a very new age level of gamesmanship, I guess, in Major League Baseball, right? I'd say. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, well, you can't do that at Wrigley. No question. You're not going to be able to adjust the roof or anything like that. It's uh, Tucker Barnhart who is with us. So we're halfway through. I I love the pitch clock. And I was skeptical because I'm like old school. Everything's going to be like it was in 1985, right? And I thought this is going to suck, but it's been really good for me. How's it been for you and your teammates and what you have seen around baseball? I'll tell you, I was right there with you. In spring training, I absolutely hated it. Um, It felt to me as if I was just constantly running uh, basketball practice suicides um it, during games in spring training because i was out of breath the whole time but uh as as you've gotten kind of in shape and used to it um and found kind of the loopholes in which you can exploit is probably a stretch but give yourself a, a couple seconds here or there 
um, it's, I, I think it's phenomenal. I think it's, it's, it's kept the game pace quick. I mean, you, we played, uh, we've played a couple games that, that I would consider marathons or, or in years past, if you would have played those games, it would have felt, I mean, they would have easily been three and a half or if not four hours and you look up and you're barely playing a, a, a three Oh five, you know? And, and I think they, like the long games now are three hours, and I would say that I don't know what the actual MLB average is, but we've played, I mean, many of two-and-a-half-and-under-timed games. It's made for a really good flow, and, and, and I think it keeps fans engaged, and it most certainly makes, uh, I think, the product on the field better. I was going to mention this last night, and then it kind of ended, but uh, the Home Run Derby was much longer than most of these games we've seen so far. I know. I they. I mean, there were so many damn home runs hit in that ballpark. <laughs> That ballpark's hard to hit homers in. Uh, when Julio Rodriguez hit 41, I think, or 42 in his first round, it seemed like he was the guy that, to beat. But uh, I don't know. I, I think I'd kind of like him go, to go back to the the ten out the ten out rule yeah. that he used to have back in the day. Uh, I think I heard somewhere today that that Vladdy Jr. hit like 74 total homers to win the thing last night, and his dad hit 17. <laughs> to win it in, I don't remember what year, but um, it just it it looks. I know, from taking batting practice every day and being in the box. I've never been in a home run derby. I've never been in timed batting practice rounds. But I cannot imagine how exhausted you would be after swinging for three minutes straight just trying to hit home runs. Now, Rosarena looked absolutely gassed at the yeah, end. It, it it would be it would be, it would be tough. I, I talked to Adam Duvall when he did it in San Diego a few years ago, and he said that his forearms he he, f- he felt like he couldn't lift like two pound dumbbells after the whole thing was over with. He was so tired. Yeah, I I um it was it, it reminded me there was so much going on during these timed at bats that I mean it was tough to even take any of it in. I, I mean it was I mean I know that they they're going for that short attention span group that is out there and those are many there're more of them than there are of us out there but it seems like that that was at almost too much of a pace even for them last night. It certainly felt that way. I tell you what, I think they need to do away with the kids in the outfield because somebody's going to get scalped. I mean, you got guys hitting 115, 118 mile an hour line drive. Yeah, Guerrero hit somebody last night, didn't he? In the hit, I, I know. I, I mean, it's it's that's uh, that's so dangerous. I'm shocked with the amount of safety and everything that's in the game right now. <laughs> Absolutely shocked that they allow that to happen. Well, so. I mean, there, there's so many of them coming out there, and they're coming at you so quickly. I mean, you you settle under one. Like I was I was watching it last night, and I was wondering, and I didn't notice this happened. But I was wondering if we have have ever seen, or if we have seen most recently when all this kind of started, if we've ever seen a a home run land after the next pitch was hit as a home run. You know what I mean? Like you get a majestic, yeah. you get a majestic shot with a hump in it, and then the next pitch you take one out on a clothesline. If one, the second one has ever landed before the first home run has come down. I'm I'm sure it, it, if if it didn't happen last night, I'd be shocked. It's like the old dodgeball trick where you run up and you lob one up in the air. You got one behind your back and you throw it and you hit the kid right in the face because he's waiting on the one to come down. Yeah, it's the same exact thing. I, exactly. It, that's what I just kind of wondered that last night, especially when I was watching a Rosarena because you know he has that short, compact swing that's just an uppercut, and he would hit some that had a huge hump in it, and then others were just like a, a line drive, frozen rope, just past the fence right there. So I, I was kind of wondering that last night I was watching. So 
Well, I don't hit them hard enough, so I, I wouldn't be able to tell you. But just just watching it, that most certainly looked like that could have happened. It's uh, Tucker Barnhart of the Cubs with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So what do you think about your former team and what they're doing right what, now? And not the Tigers, by the way. I, I, the, the the red legs are they're, – they're something. Um, I've talked to, to quite a few of the uh, writers and, and – couple coaches over there and then i've been back and forth with with vado quite a bit uh via text they're they're fun to watch they're they're doing something right they're playing an exciting game of baseball that's for sure um ellie de la cruz he uh he's a reason to turn it on every night he's the reason to watch the game that's for sure all right let's let's talk about this for a moment as a catcher uh you would have a great breakdown of it on saturday when he stole second third and then home how ridiculous is that? Knowing that it hadn't been done since like the nineteen you know, teens, um, knowing it hasn't been done since that time, how difficult would that be to do that in this era, any era of baseball? I, I mean, that I think that number, or that stat, tells you everything you need to know. It's, it's something that hadn't been done. Anything, whatever the case is, anything that hadn't been done since the nineteen nineteen teens or nineteen twenties, whatever the case is. I mean. That tells you all you need to know. I, I can't even fathom being able to run that fast. Um, but it, it did look – I mean, he obviously stole second on a normal play yeah. and stole third on a normal play. Um, but then it looked like they, in a way, kind of gave him home plate. Uh, it looked to me – He measured that, it. He had it measured, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, he walked He walked halfway down the line and nobody really did anything. The third baseman was basically at shortstop. And with a guy like that, they can run like that. Yeah, I mean it's a lot like when I played with Billy Hamilton. I mean, if if teams weren't if teams weren't completely focused on him when he was on the bases, he was going to do something crazy like that. He's going to do something that you've never seen before, and that's what I mean. I think that's what Ellie De La Cruz is doing, not only on the bases but at, at the plate. Uh, I mean, in the in the field. I mean, he's he's special. Is De La Cruz, in your opinion, faster than Billy Hamilton? I, you know, to be honest with you, man, I haven't seen him in person, so it'd be hard to it'd be hard to tell you. With I mean, there's. I would take Billy against anybody um, that I've ever seen run in person. Being six foot five, like that. <laughs> no, though. he takes like uh, one and a half strides, and he's at the next base. <laughs> that 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 was ridiculous. I mentioned this yesterday too, and Tucker Barnhart joins us, and you talk about the, you know, the stealing of second, third, and then home. He's he's got because I don't think enough is made about this. We make so much about his level of athleticism you know, between speed and power and that just elite level combination that he has. But just that play of stealing home, that was baseball IQ because he had that measured. It's almost like he knew he knew he could get because it was even with a perfect throw, they weren't going to get him. I mean, he had that thing perfectly measured. So I, I think a lot has been lost because it's such a, a, a month-long span and an early age, and he is so incredibly athletically gifted that he seems to have a really good level of baseball IQ at a very young age, too. I would agree. Um, I, I think you can, in, in a way, you can overpower, the. I would say, the minor leagues with athleticism or just raw God-given talent. But at the big league level, there's so many – People that are that are focused at every single play on the little things. I mean, we have it feels like more coaches than players sometimes that that walk us through things in meetings that have happened um, at, at certain points from the teams that we're getting ready to play. And so, I mean, you've got to be able to 
think your way through the game at the big league level. And, and I think that, that baseball IQ, the piece that you're talking about is involved in that. And to be able, first of all, to trust yourself to make that play, because if he's out there, I mean, he looks, yeah. he doesn't look very good, you know, and, and, and it, you probably get talked to by David Bell, but Hey, like let's maybe rein it in a little bit or maybe not, but it puts himself in that position. But to he know that he was going to be safe, it's pretty cool. Uh, and what they're doing in Cincinnati, I think is pretty cool. I feel really good at, Good for the city. I feel really good for David Bell, the organization. I mean, they've been through obviously so much, and I mean, I was there for so long um, that that I'm I'm genuinely happy for for everybody over there. I I just wonder they they are a team that plays. I had Spencer Steer on here a couple of weeks ago, and they're they're a team that plays basically with their foot on the accelerator the entire time, and you know, and and they have been able to do that, and that's been great, but. I think they also do it out of necessity because the other side of it, their pitching staff is is not anything to write home about. So you got to make up for that someplace, especially when you win 12 consecutive as they did. And it seems like they understand that you're you're going to have to you're going to have to score a lot of runs here to maintain, considering where the pitching staff is right now and how much how much space they have to get where it needs to be. Ultimately, does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I, I think the the opposite is true as well. When you have r- really good starters, it, it kind of calms your offense in a way where you know that if you only get two or three, you still got a really good chance. I mean, it, that, it was that way with us in Cincinnati when a guy like Sonny Gray was on the mound or, or Bauer was on the mound or Luis Castillo, those guys where – you knew that if you if if you just scraped a couple together uh, that that you that you'd have a chance. But I, I think the same thing applies when you're going the opposite direction too, where it's just you you know that the game's never over. So those old unwritten rules of maybe running when you're up too much or whatever the case is, they don't really. It doesn't seem like they play with those. And I and I agree. I don't think I don't really think teams should play with those anyway. I think they're they're tired, but uh, I think it's one of those things that that when you always have your foot on the gas, it, it matches kind of the way that they play and the, with the level of intensity and pressure that they put on the other team. I mean, they swept us in Chicago, um, and, and you felt pressure on you the whole the whole time. Yeah, and and that's this kind of their their signature right now. I mean, there's nothing station to station about them whatsoever, and it, and it can't be because they're just not that that type of team. I will ask you this. They have a number of stolen bases. Of course, Ellie De La Cruz, among those that have uh, a high level of stolen bases for a long period of time, Tucker. We saw the stolen base basically disappear in Major League Baseball. Is the reemergence at this level right now, is that a product of the pitching clock? And then how difficult is that to deal with base stealing or is it with the pitching clock that we see for the first time this year? I think it has a part to it has a it has a part to do with the pitch clock. Um, I think also I think with the with the there's so many more camera angles now, and we see it every day. We have a base running meeting every day before the game, and it goes over it goes over the pitcher and the tendencies of when he's pitching and going to the plate versus when he's picking off. This is what he does right before he starts to go to home plate. So he obviously then can't pick over towards you at, at first base. I mean, hell, I have a stolen base this year, which I haven't had a stolen base in the last probably four years. <laughs> and I had it based on a tip from the pitcher that was that was on the mound. So it's just one of those things I think the information is so – there's so much out there now. Obviously, then you add the, the number of pickoffs that you can make, and then you add the pitch clock piece to it. 
Uh, there's just a lot. The bases are bigger, which is it, it seems kind of stupid to say, but it does matter because there's a, a few extra inches that it helps guys get closer to the base or get to the base faster. You know, so I think it's it's all of that kind of combined together that's making it more difficult to th- to throw guys out for sure. Do all of your guys, all your pitchers, use the uh, slide step? Um, not all of them. No, we've uh, we've we've struggled a little bit. We've had m- multiple meetings about getting better at our times to the plate um, and making sure that we can be a little quicker and give give us chances to throw. What, what does that been, time have to be now compared to like five or so years ago when you were? It it, it depends. It depends on the runner. Okay. Um, but the the all of the new rules and stuff haven't changed what like those times need to be. So. Generally, like the golden rule, I believe, is like under a 1-4, you got a pretty good chance. It's just like simple math, I guess. I think if the 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 higher the time from the pitcher, the lower the pop time from the catcher, and the best pop time you'll see this year, roughly pop time meaning when I catch the ball to when the guy at second base catches the ball, the best one you'll see throughout the league, and you'll probably see at one time, would be maybe under, under a 1-8 which is really hard to do in, in, in the one sevens, which is very hard to do. Um, and then you kind of add that together with how quickly a guy gets to second base, which is, I don't know the math on that, but it's uh, it becomes a math equation. And when, uh, when it gets to the point where the catcher's best throw doesn't matter, that's when guys need to get quicker. How, okay. Besides the, the slide step, which, and I, the reason why I brought that up is because when I was watching the Reds in that series against the nationals, it, it didn't seem like any of those dudes did it. And, I mean, you could absolutely tell that they were giving their guy no chance to throw anybody out. It was just like a carousel around the bases. But um, how does that affect your pitch calling now that the it, the stolen base is becoming more prominent? Um, it, I, I'd like to say it doesn't affect it, but it does a little bit. I mean, there are certain times where, say, we're ahead in the count if we're 0-2 and there's a base dealer at first base and we got a pitch or two to waste to before we – really need to make sure we get this guy out. You might throw a fastball kind of in a better spot to throw on from a catcher's perspective, maybe than you used to um, or, or whatever. But um, it, it, it doesn't change it a bunch because at the end of the day, you'll, you'd rather the pitcher be kind of locked in and making pitches and executing pitches versus worrying about trying to throw out a guy. There's a lot of, there's a lot of times where throwing out a guy is kind of icing on the cake versus, Versus making sure that the pitcher's focused on getting the hitter out. So it is true. I mean, st- stolen base guys when they get on, does it rattle dudes often more often than not on the mound? I, th- I wouldn't say that it rattles guys. I, I think that, that it definitely there are certain guys that it gets into their head. I mean, some of the most athletic pitchers that I've ever played with, it it, it can't slide step, which is which is crazy to me. I mean. There's just certain guys that get on the mound that, that when guys get to first base they they panic and they can't they can't pick over um, if they come all the way set um, in the stretch and then pick over they can't do that they have to pick like before they come all the way set because of anxiety and of balking and all kinds of things I mean there's a lot more a lot more craziness that goes on I think than a lot of people would lead into in terms of what pitchers are thinking thinking out there when, when stolen base guys get, get, so, get the first base. That's why we have you here, Tucker Barnhart, friend of the show on the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. Who is the coolest of your new half-season teammates on Chicago Northside? Who's the coolest? Oh, man. 
That's a tough one. Um, I, I'm a Ian Happ. I'm a big Ian Happ fan. Uh, we play golf. We play golf quite a bit together. He's a he's a damn good golfer. He'd probably play uh, on on some sort of tour if he wasn't playing baseball. But um, he's up there. Um, I love Marcus Stroman. Big big Marcus Stroman fan. I uh, like the way he get, goes about his business. Um, he reminds me a lot of Brandon Phillips. Uh, he keeps everything light, um, and he's a, he's a presence. He's got a he's a presence about him. Um, Nico Horner is he plays so hard. He reminds me a lot of playing with Jonathan India. Uh, we we've got a lot of really really good dudes, um, and that's why I hope. I mean, it would be. I mean, everybody says this, but but I genuinely mean it. It would be so much fun to win with the group of guys that we have. Uh, just because we all get along and we all we all do things off the field. I mean, when we went to London, all of our families got together and we all hung out and enjoyed that trip and just had a, it's it's a it's a it's a great time. That's for sure. So, how'd you like to fly it over there? Was that your first time? It was the flight over there um, wasn't terrible. The bus rides were yes. miserable. Yes. Well, I, I can but, tell you this. Where'd you fly into Heathrow or Getwick? Uh, I don't think either of them oh, really? flew into like a like a um, uh, like an Eagle Creek Airport. Or okay, like a, I got you. Some kind like of that. executive airport over yeah, there. Yeah, it's like yeah. an executive airport over there. And it took us. It, we our hotel was seven miles from the from the stadium. Yeah, and it took to get back. It took us an hour and a half to go seven miles yeah it was misery there is no doubt the same thing so when we went with the colts the flight over there was awesome comfortable as hell felt great it was you know basically non-stop from here to getwick and then we climbed on that bus and it almost seemed like it took longer on the bus to get to our hotel, you know, around Trafalgar Square and, and Piccadilly Circus than it did to fly over there. It was that bad. No, no doubt about it. The trip itself was great. The atmosphere playing was great. Um, but in terms of the travel, we I mean, there was one, the, um, let's see, the Saturday night game that we played, we ended up, we were coming back and, um, all of us got off the bus. We had, we told the bus driver to stop because first of all, the bus driver, we started from the stadium seven miles away. He took a wrong turn and we ended up 10 miles away from the hotel. <laughs> so he went three miles out of the way and there was no traffic. So we're like, Oh, we're rolling. We're, we're going to be back at the hotel. No time. So we put it in Google maps or whatever. And we ended up, we, it, we were in, still an hour away from the hotel. So all of us, like there was probably seven, players and and our wives and we all got off and got on the train and took the train back to uh yeah. back to the hotel the tube baby you got in the tube the huh tube. i love yep. the tube did you did you mind the gap did i mind the gap yes i did i was told multiple times to mind the gap <laughs> mind mind the gap. mind the gap i love they call it an oyster card over there and that's yeah I, I spent basically a day going around in the tube minding the gap going to different places that makes it easy right there it was it was fun. All right, uh, before I, one more thing, really quick, before I let you go, Tucker Barnhart's with us. Um, what's been the nicest and maybe the not so nice thing that's been said to you at Wrigley Field so far this year? Oh man, let's see. The nicest thing I've said. Oh, I get a lot of like, hey, like we love watching you play. Yeah, like we're we're pumped that you're here. I mean, those are definitely some of the nicest obviously things that i've said i get a lot of uh a lot of balding jokes i keep my hair i keep my hair really tight i have a tight like basically a skin fade 
I'm not balding necessarily. My hair is not super thick. There's let's, no, there's no doubt about that. But I get like, hey man, like put a like put the put a hat on jokes. The hey, it's but you're balding up there, like all kinds of things. Whatever. My hair's blonde and I keep it tight. It's I'm not balding. <laughs> well, you know, I know somebody that can can give you a little I helper. Know that. You got I the do know that. You know, you got the option, right? If you need it from me. I appreciate that. <laughs> Tell Sierra and the gang, I said hello, man. We'll do it again. Have a good rest here. Sounds good, man. I'm going to drink some margaritas and then maybe finish it off with a little bit of Field of Dreams tonight. Yeah, yeah, do that. And prank call. When you, when you like, get really thick into it drinking, like, prank call storm. Perfect. He'll love Will it. Do. He will. See you, buddy. <laughs> Take care, guys. See ya. It's uh, Tucker Barnhart of the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline right there. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Potline, Greg Rakestraw, he does join us. Greg, it's just Summer League, right? It is just Summer League, and I thought in watching Benedict Matherin play last night, he like recognized it was just Summer League. Because I'm not sure he was exactly going at full speed <laughs> yeah. at times last night. But it it was like a pickup game to him, wasn't it? It looked like. Correct. Yeah. It, it, that, that was very much a pro-am uh, level effort he was giving last night. Um, but at the same time, I'm, it was cool to see him and Andrew Nemhard both play. But given how those two dudes played as rookies this year, I didn't just see them in the summer league. Uh, I'm not exactly broke up that they're done. I wanted to see a little more of Isaiah Jackson. I thought he was really good, knowing that he is done for the summer league as well, but I am I am not putting too much emphasis on summer league. Period, especially from a guy that I thought was really good as a rookie this past year. Well, ben Shepard knocked down shots last night. I do want to see more of Isaiah Wong yep. to see more of these guys. You know, this case, the Pacers with as many active roster dudes from a year ago that are on this team, they should win this summer league. I don't think there's any doubt about that. It just depends on if they pull the plug on these guys that were on the active roster last year. And I do, a guy that I want to see more that was drafted in the second round is Miami's Isaiah Wong. I do want to see more of him. Now, I, would, I would agree with that. And again, my expectation is, is Nemhard, Jackson, Matherin, two and done uh, for those guys. I hope I'm wrong, but but that is my expectation. Um, and, you know, apparently maybe the – I'm not sure if the talk show host of me or the play-by-play guy of me, but I'm, I'm watching at some point I pick it up, whether it's third quarter, second quarter, whatever, last night. And I thought it was interesting to see a summer league team that had five dudes that had guaranteed contracts for next year that were playing at the same time. I don't think that happens very often. Now, a couple of those guys – where guys are on two-way deals, you know, like Kendall Brown or Oscar Sheeway, but those are guys that, again, you know they are taking up a roster spot. It is rare and something we don't put much stock in in the summer league to see that many guys who you know are taking up a roster spot playing in it, even if it's only for a couple of games. So Greg Graystraw with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. I was just wanted your opinion regarding the Pascal Siakam rumors. Um, do I think that he would be a fantastic fit with his team, even you know going to turn 30 coming up in April? I do. 24 a game alongside Miles being able to score on the wing, all of that, but doesn't that seem like a wide berth with what the Pacers would have to give up to bring him in really not not just a little bit off the path but way off the path in this case 
Well, I'll be honest. I have not heard these specific rumors, so enlighten me what you're hearing in terms of what the Pacers would have to give to make that well, work. Well, I mean, there there really haven't been a lot of rumors as to what they would have to give other than it's always Buddy Heald and then a number of, of other guys to obviously match contractually Pascal Siakam. I just, to me, with what the Pacers were trying to do, all right, and listen, I'm all right. for winning right now, but in terms of what they're trying to do, it seems like, you know, unloading, you know, either draft picks or, you know, going you know, deep into even deeper into this team and, and giving up guys that they thought could be a part of the future to get Siakam. I, I would have to think that the Toronto price would be so low that it would be a situation that you could not resist. In this case, it just kind of, to me, it, it seems like even if there is, is smoke there, and certainly there's probably been an interest fire set by the Pacers, it, it doesn't seem as logical as maybe it might to others, even if I do want them to win right now. Sure. I, I think the destination that is the most logical for Pascal Siakam would be Oklahoma City because they have got just such a stupid amount of draft picks coming up in the next several drafts. Um, because they have not, you know, invested heavily in free agents other than, say, their own draft picks. You know, they've got some cap space to run on it exactly in front of me. But if if I'm Toronto and I'm knowing, all right, I want to get something back for Siakam, knowing he is entering the last year of his deal, what's the thing that I want the most of? It's not other expiring contracts. You've already hit that if if, if you're Toronto. You want a team that has the most amount of draft picks that they are willing to give you as possible. And there has never been a team in the history of Western civilization that has had as many draft picks as Oklahoma City has. So I know that uh, you know, you're not exactly burning up the charts talking about the Oklahoma City Thunder, the Toronto Raptors, but I've always thought if Siakam's going someplace, yeah. that's the place he's ending up. Yeah, yeah I mean, well, it makes a lot of sense. Plus, they got young players that they just drafted as well that probably would interest right. Toronto that you could factor in and then obviously end up doing something uh, contractually and match the numbers up too. But I guess there's always a third team that could become involved. Like Zach Lowe, for example, Greg, had within the last, I don't know, hour or so on a podcast, said, quote, I don't think the Pacer interest level in Siakam is quite where it's been reported to be. Sure. I've said all along it almost sounds like it's a Siakam agent that's trying to drum up even more money in a longer term extension in this case in Toronto. That's what it sounds like. Sure, that's it. And again, it's, it's a little bit different than, say, all of the Westbrook rumors last year. Because everybody thought about this from the Pacers' perspective. It was just, hey, this was a random place to put him Everybody's thinking about this from the Lakers' perspective. You don't get that as much because they're obviously a big deal north of the border. Unless they're good, nobody's talking about the Raptors south of the border. All right, you watch the home run derby last night, Greg? I did not watch a single second of it, but in hearing you talk about it, yeah. I find it stunning that we're thinking that perhaps baseball may have over-nerded something out in terms of the way they broadcast the uh, event. Yeah, yeah. I mean, seriously, it is – when that thing is going, you can't keep up with it. It's so quick. And, and and I know I know you're broadcasting with, you know, everybody's attention spans in mind with the younger generation being about the size of a gnat in this case. But it's almost when the action is going on, it's tough to keep up with. It reminded me of playing Missile Command. Here is here is what maybe I would offer, and I know that yeah. There was some summer league basketball last night. Like the Pacers were relegated to ESPN three. You know, you had to go online to watch that game, and I did. So I literally had—I forget what I had. I think I had the Formula One race on on tape on my 
on, on the main screen, and I literally was watching the Pacers and Magic on my phone, a nice chill evening in the Rakestraw household last night. Um, perhaps, though, knowing you've got like 19 different ESPN channels, maybe you have the traditional old-school Berman-esque home run derby for us old farts to watch, and then you have the missile command version on like ESPN2. You know, treat it like the Final Four of the college football playoff championship game. Offer like 13 different broadcasts since there's nothing else going on and you've got a little airspace to fill. Yeah. yeah. I mean, listen, I watched it, but it was there was a lot. There was a lot going on in that time span. So the Midsummer Classic is tonight. What do you think is the best play in the history of the All-Star game? You got anything in mind? Immediately, the, uh, the Pete Rose clearing out of Ray Fossey yes. comes to mind. The Dave Parker yes. throw That's number one. right field in Seattle yeah. comes to mind. The Bo Jackson home run in San Francisco. Led the game. Ronald Reagan in the booth with Vin Scully as yep. he hits it. Yes. Uh, immediately comes to mind as well. Yeah. Those are at the top of my list right there. But the Parker throw from right field in Seattle, gunning down Brian Downing at the plate with Gary Carter blocking it is at the top of the list. And then if you see, you watch that at the end of the replay and you see Pete Rose, by the way, in a Phillies uniform playing first base, giving the uh, calling the out sign with his right arm. It's all pretty spectacular for 1979. Also, don't sleep on, you know, Bud Seelig shrugging his shoulders and they decided to call the game as a tie after 10 innings in 2002. That's up there as well. So Greg Rakestraw is with us. What do you, you think? And I know you do a lot of college sports stuff. What do you think about what's transpired over the past three, four days now at Northwestern around that football program? Kind of a similar thing that I think a, a lot of times uh, when stories like this play out, and that is in this day and age when – Everybody has a voice from an athlete standpoint via social media, and everybody has a camera with them at all times on their phone. How in the world you would think that you would get away with something like that or that would not become public knowledge is is beyond bizarre to me. Uh, So if there was almost an instruction list on a whiteboard, if that is an accurate and true report, how you don't think that gets out it is just absolutely floors me. Um, and one of the other thoughts that, that kind of crossed my mind, too, um, is that, you know, in, in, in this day and age now, that name, image, and likeness is legal and paying players are, are legal, you've got kind of the ultimate, to some degree, meritocracy, the ultimate incentive to go and be a good player. You don't have to give somebody a code red. Uh, you don't, you know, you're, 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 there, there's no hazing that needs to be done. You know, if you're good, you're going to make money, even the college level. That's a pretty good level of uh, of enticement to to do things the right way and kind of follow the line. And if not, you know what? You're going to play someplace else the next year. So this kind of beyond stupid, antiquated actions of, of a team like that just floors me that that something like that would still be done. And the people that did it thought they could get away with it. Yeah, so the, the uh, heavy-duty lowering up that uh, Fitzgerald has done here, is is that in terms of him believe, believing he's innocent or in terms of how his, uh, his higher-ups handled his departure? I, I, I think there could be, you know, the circles could overlap there. A couple other things I would say is this, uh, ensuring – 
uh, you know, there's there's money still heading to him based on what his contract stipulated. Other thing is, you've got to remember, this is a guy that has had some interest from the National Football League. That may change now, uh, depending on how this story really plays out. But he's also a guy that is not just going to, in theory, from an age standpoint, you know, walk off into retirement. You know, Pat, in terms of age, is somewhere between you and me. Uh, you know, late 40s, early 50s. I think it'd be late 40s at this point. Uh, and so my guess would be is that, you know, he's also thinking about, hey, I'd like to have a coaching future after this. And so I think part of this, too, is potentially trying to save his name and, and perhaps make his way into the National Football League at some point in time. So Greg Rakestraw, who's with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group hotline. So what do you got going on this week? So I got a little Indy 11 soccer tomorrow night. Uh, the men's team uh, in action, a midweeker against the Charleston Battery. I want to, unfortunately, be on the call of the women's semifinal on Friday night. We'll produce it on ISC, but I've got the annual IFCA North-South All-Star game. So uh, that event is always like kind of my tip-off to say, all right, football season's just around the corner. Because as soon as I do the IFCA North-South All-Star game, I know training camp's about two weeks away, and it is always five weeks from that All-Star game to the start of the high school football season. And not talking about practice, I'm talking about actual games that take place. So uh, life is kind of slow for me after this week for about 10 days. The fiscal year kicks in about July 25th. So business is about to pick up for yours truly and for yourself as well. I know that uh, we brought this up before, but have you had a moment to look at the Center Grove football schedule that Eric Moore has cobbled together? The fact that it's the uh, the bingo longs traveling all stars in the first six games are against teams from out of state. I think they only have four games with uh, teams in state, don't they, on their schedule regular season wise? What, what Cathedral, Pike, LN, and LC? Those are the only four. Correct, uh, and so that means that I thought the first six weeks would be against the first five. Yeah, they're against out of state foes, uh, and again. You know, the mixed schools have kind of said, you know, have left it kind of school by school. Hey, we want to play. We don't want to play. Uh, I think the Pike game was off the schedule. And basically, Pike said, hey, we'd rather play you than not play at all. And so that's why that game kind of came back on the schedule. Long term, I don't know how long, you know, Pike and LN will be on the Center Grove schedule. Not sure about LC. Cathedral's not going anywhere. But uh, it's going to be an interesting fall down on the south side. But at the same time, be more of the same. They're going to be really good again because they were they were good a year ahead of schedule last year. They 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 dropped back to the pack a little bit, but still were clearly the best team in the state a year ago. Are, are they are they going to start the season even with that schedule that we bring up as the best team? Where does Cathedral rank in that category as well? How, how do you view it really in all classes to start? The Center Center Grove is, is is the best team. I mean, they're, they're both the defending champs and they return. So many key pieces. Now, Cathedral is always going to be good. Cathedral returns, you know, a, a top-flight level quarterback nationally and Danny O'Neill. They had some key pieces that graduated, whether it's guys defensively like uh, Gilbert, like Kendall, uh, whether it's it's Wooten, uh, and obviously um, Tibbs, you know, that's now at Purdue. Uh, so they, they lost some key pieces on both sides of the ball. They'll be good because their quarterback is good. There'll be a learning process uh, to some degree uh, for Coach Peebles' squad. Um, and as far as the other classes are concerned, you know, kind of time will tell. You know, Ron Colley is a team that has built themselves up in a 4A. East Central got them in the semi-state. East Central returns most of their key pieces. So those two schools are kind of circling each other in 4A. And frankly, you get to 1A, 2A, 3A. It's a lot of the usual parochial powers 
that are going to grab your attention. No doubt about that. Greg Rakestraw with us via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Podline, the calm before the storm. Everything officially underway. Greg, I appreciate that, and I'm assuming that I'll hear from you coming up on Saturday night with nothing but the 90s. Absolutely. I mean, my my immediate thought, so when it's a 90 show, yep. would be Winona's Big Brown Beaver from Primus. <laughs> so then go ahead and get that lined up. I can. Me. I will get that lined up. Winona's Big Brown Beaver from Primus is going to be yes, ready sir. to rock for you right there. Thank you, my brother. You got it. Thank you. Greg Rakestraw via the Andy Moore Automotive Group Hotline. 